It's wonderful to see all of our visitors amongst us, and uh, we are very grateful for your attendance this morning, as well as those of you, brethren, who have gathered here, who typically do on the first day of the week anyway. Very grateful to see everybody. And uh, first thing I want to do as I get back up into the pulpit this morning is to thank brothers Tom Burgess and Corky House for filling in for me during my absence from the pulpit last week. I heard they both did a wonderful job, and I am grateful for their efforts and their willingness to step forward and teach and bring lessons. Karen and I, as you know, were away over in Kosciuszko, Kosciuszko, if I can say it right, Mississippi. Uh, we had a, a very good time. We had a, an awesome trip with the church over there. Um, had an opportunity to fellowship with a lot of visitors during the gospel meeting that uh, came for some of the sessions. Had the, an opportunity to meet several of the local area preachers and spend time with them. And for preacher, that's a blessing. So, also had a lot of time to spend with Elihu Thompson, who's the preacher. They are in French Camp, Mississippi. He and his wife Phyllis, just amazing times. We're grateful for that. Of course, the connection to that congregation over there, as you'll recall, is Brother Larry Black. Larry Black worshipped with us for a time while he was a heavy equipment operator working pipeline back in 2014. About four years ago, you'll probably remember him. And he recalled with love his time spent with this congregation. He told how he'd love to bring his wife and a few others and just drive a van load back over here for a visit. He recalled with love and affection going out to dinner with the Kesners and was very grateful and was asking for them. And he and his wife both wanted us to pass along how grateful they were to the two sisters who sent them encouragement cards in light of their grandson's terrible time with Crohn's disease and how grateful they were for that encouragement. Speaking of their three-year-old grandson who has Crohn's disease, I, I will tell you what a, what a wonderful and, and faithful family are Larry and Rachel's daughter and son-in-law. Their son-in-law works a very long day. From what I understand, he's a math teacher, a basketball coach, an assistant principal, and other things that go along with that. And so his days are long. And um, but it was—I told him this would work its way into a sermon. Uh, he was coming back one night from some meeting that he had quite a ways away, and he was there for all three nights. Of the gospel meeting, the lead singing. But he said he had had on a ball cap all day, so he's traveling back and he went into a porta potty and washed his hair. Now, don't get me wrong, there was a sink in there. <laughs> but he went into a porta potty and, and washed his hair and he thought he'd get back in time to change into a suit to lead singing. And, and he saw he wasn't going to, so he pulled over in a rest area and he changed and he showed up just before the meeting and, and he was there to sing. And you say, well, you know, people should be there for the meeting. Yeah, but here's the thing. thing. Because of his son's Crohn's disease and the treatments that little boy has to take, his wife is pretty much housebound 24-7. If you go to visit, it's my understanding you have to be sprayed down with Lysol. Uh, the little three-year-old has a feeding tube in and he's suffering uh, immensely from some of the effects of that at times. Uh, I won't go into all of the details, but... but um, 
It's just a, a tragic situation. And there's another family over there, a pillar in the congregation that's been going there for decades, who's coming to the end of his earthly existence. And so the gospel meeting, knowing some of these things that were going on, the gospel meeting was designed to encourage them of their great and awesome God's love. Brother Larry was here about four years ago, as I said, and he was here in March the 16th of 2014, and I started a little two-part sermon miniseries back then. I, I preached it here, and it was called The Power of 316. Some of you may remember it, some of you may not. But Larry, when I went to go to Oak Ridge last year, said he'd really like to hear those two lessons again. He found them to be highly encouraging and as you heard from announcements and as you see in our bulletin here and I'm sure with the sister congregations that are represented here this morning there's a lot of struggles and health struggles and cancer and issues and those sorts of things and so I want to preach that sermon series again a briefer version of it here because I think that there's a lot of power in these 316 passages there is a complete list out on the foyer table of all of the 316 so-called power passages as I have defined them for this little two-part sermon mini-series. But this morning we're going to take a look at some in the Old Testament. Of course, we're going to start though with John 3, 16 and 17. Perhaps John 3:16 is the best known verse in the entire Bible. But the beauty of John 3:16 is that we it's a beautiful, incredible, awesome passage about God's love, but we so often just take it out of its context and make it stand alone, and we shouldn't do that. And we'll find with some of these other 316 verses, they're the heart and soul or centerpiece of a, a longer text that tells us about God's incredible love and providence for us. In John 3.16, of course, we know, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But don't, don't separate that from verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, through Him, might be saved. God sent His Son and gave Him for us. After all of those centuries, after those millennia, of people just turning their back and walk away, walking away from God. How much can God take? After people disappointed Him and abandoned Him and rejected Him and, casted him and cast Him aside for millennia, when God sent His Son into the world, even after all mankind had done to reject God, it wasn't to condemn the world, it was to save the world. What an awesome God we have. He came to save us. And I want us to see from the Old Testament this morning and then the New Testament tonight. I want us to see God's love and care for us reflected in a lot of 316 passages. Now I realize when the Bible was written it was not divided down into chapter and verse. But as we look at just a few of these, notice God's love. Let's start with Genesis chapter 3. Back to the beginning, as it were. Not back to the future, back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. And again, verse 16 might not be the entirety of it, but it's the, at the heart of a passage talking about God's incredible love. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14, says this. 
after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you will eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And you may look at that and say, well, that doesn't sound very promising. But brethren, if you say that, you've missed the heart of that text. The heart of that text is actually seen there in the fact that God, in verse 15, already begins to make that promise. This is the first messianic prophecy that we have in the Old Testament. Despite the mess they had made, despite the, the fact that they had decided to trust Satan instead of trusting God. What does God do? I mean, God could have zapped him right there, but what does God do? He said, I got a plan. I love you so much, I got a plan. And this is what's going to happen to Satan. Satan's going to lose this battle. And the beautiful part about that is, is that God had that plan in place before he even built the world. Ephesians 1, 4 and Ephesians 3, 8 through 11 talks about this plan God had in place before the foundation of the world. What an awesome God we serve. He was ready to fix the mess he knew we'd make before we make, made it. In Exodus chapter 3, if you would turn over there please, Exodus chapter 3, we see the calling of Moses as he is to become the Old Testament forerunner of the Christ. In Exodus 3, beginning at verse 13 and running down through verse 17, it reads as follows. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Out of the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. What I want you to see in this passage that centers around chapter 3 and verse 16 
is number one, God says, I am. What does that mean? That means God always is. That means God always is, always was, and always will be. God is there. Number two, the beautiful thing about this God, he says, I have surely visited you and seen what was done to you. God knows what you're going through. Isn't that awesome? God says, I have seen what you're going through. I always am. I am right there with you. I have seen your affliction. And guess what? God says, I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't it awesome to know as we go through this life, when we go through our hard times, that God says, I am. I'm right there. That God says, I know what you're going through. And that God says, I will take you through to the promised land. Another one that we would speak of this morning as a 316 power passage is in Joshua chapter 3. Please turn there. Joshua chapter 3. You know, we often recall and remember in awe what God did in providing Moses and the Israelites their path through the Red Sea and how Moses and the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. It says on dry ground, which was amazing as that water pulled back on both sides, even the sand. You know when you go to the beach sometimes, the waves come in and you walk and it's wet? The ground wasn't even wet as they walked through the heart of the Red Sea. And we, we say, what a miracle. And indeed it was. But the story of Joshua and the Israelites crossing Jordan is no less impressive. It's in this passage referenced with 3.16 at its heart. Joshua 3, beginning at verse 14. So it was, when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream, stood still. And he rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaretan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, watch this, stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Don't miss that word midst. It's not like they got up on the bank to a place where the water hadn't reached. They're right in the middle of the Jordan. The place that would be the wettest. And guess what? They're on dry ground. And so they crossed over. And all Israel crossed over, verse 17, on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. How many songs do we sing in our congregations about crossing over Jordan? There's quite a number of them, isn't there? Talk about crossing over Jordan. How come we never sing about crossing over the Red Sea? Really, it's a legitimate question. The miracles are very parallel, very similar. I'll tell you why, or why I think anyway. Symbolically speaking, the Red Sea represents our baptism. Think about this. In the Old Testament, symbolically speaking, the Red Sea, remember 1 Corinthians 10 talks about how they were baptized into Moses in the cloud. 
When they crossed the Red Sea, that represents our baptism symbolically because after they crossed the Red Sea, where did they come out? Then they entered the desert of sin, according to Exodus 16 and 17. And when we are baptized into Christ and we come out, we still have a sinful world to walk through. We still struggle around sometimes like straying pilgrims. But crossing over the Jordan represents entering the promised land. Crossing over the Jordan is symbolic of our entrance into heaven when we pass in this life and we cross over Jordan into the promised land as it were. And as I read this passage here about how in verse 17 they all cross completely over. God leaves nobody behind that wants to go. I am reminded of Hebrews 7.25 where it says Jesus is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Just as every last one of those Israelites all cross completely over, by the grace of God, we all get to cross completely over with the help of Jesus to that heavenly spiritual promised land. What a powerful passage. If we were to turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Kings... Chapter 3. I will just mention briefly from 1 Kings chapter 3 that in that chapter we see Solomon's beautiful prayer for wisdom. As a young king, he wants wisdom to govern God's people, and God answers his prayer. And God gives him all this wisdom. And then in 1 Kings 3 and verse 16, we see that God immediately gave Solomon the opportunity. To use that wisdom, the two harlots came to him with this fight over whose child it was. And so Solomon dealt with that with this godly wisdom. And, and the power there for us in 1 Kings 3 and verse 16, or the thing we need to realize is this. When we pray to God for wisdom, when we come to Bible class and we come to church and we're seeking wisdom and we're seeking knowledge, we will find it. James said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him pray. So we pray for wisdom in our, in our trials, as James is talking about. We, we study God's word and we make every effort to study. Guess what? God doesn't just let us learn things, just to put them on a back burner in our mind somewhere. God will give us the opportunity in the days and weeks to come to use that wisdom that we have learned from him. That is 1 Kings 3.16. If we turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 3, which I would ask you to do. We're going to see here in 2 Kings, chapter 3, that the Moabites are rebelling against God's people, or fighting against God's people. God's people are led by King Jehoram. Now, Jehoram was an evil king. We, we talk about the good kings, the evil kings. King Jehoram was an evil king. He was the son of another evil king named Ahab. And even when evil King Jehoram enlists the assistance of good King Jehoshaphat, who was king over Judah, and the king of Eden, Edom, the three of those kings find themselves in some dire straits. 2 Kings 3, beginning at verse 9. 
So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. There was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Oh no, we're going to perish. It's awful. But Jehoshaphat, and remember, he was the good king, said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elijah said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Remember, this king was the son of Ahab. And Ahab had worshipped Baal. And so, when this evil king and these other two go down to the prophet Elisha, Elisha says, hey, you know what? Let all those other, kids, all those other gods save you. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Elijah says, You know what? Jehoshaphat's a good king. He's one who wants to follow God. If he wasn't with you, I wouldn't even give you the time of day, is how we would say it today. But seeing as how the good king is with you, Bring me a musician, verse 15, and it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Now remember, they didn't have any water. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley will be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Isn't God awesome? They've got this big fight on their hands. They're afraid they're all going to perish. Sometimes our struggles seem like they're just going to overwhelm us. The roof is caving in. The, the ground is falling out from under us. Everything's coming apart at the seams. We just want to sit down and cry. These guys were sure they'd had it. And Elisha says, no. Because you're asking the Lord's help, no, here's what's going to happen. You go down and dig some ditches. You're not going to see a cloud in the sky. You're not going to see it. But I'm telling you right now, there's going to be more water there than you'll ever need. And here's the cool part about that. That's what makes this a power passage. You ready for this? If I may paraphrase what I just read, and hopefully you, you read it too, but if I may paraphrase, he said, that life or death struggle, it's a very small thing for God to deal with. In fact, God's going to fix that problem and to show you, He's just getting warmed up. On top of that, here's what else is going to happen. Here's what else God's going to do for you. This life or death problem of yours is small potatoes to the Lord. It's a simple matter, verse 18. He's also going to deliver the Moabites into your hand. God's going to take it up a level. And indeed, we would read on in that chapter and find out that that's exactly what happened. Do not we serve an awesome God. In Proverbs chapter 3, if you would turn there with me, please. Proverbs chapter 3. We see the providential power of godly wisdom to provide something, the presence of which is so elusive in this world. Happiness. 
Proverbs 3, verse 13. Happiness. In verse 13 it says, of Proverbs 3, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. Is the Bible still true? Bible still just as true as the day God penned it, had it penned. This, by, this word says, the man who finds wisdom, speaking of godly wisdom, because that's the context here, happy is that man and the man who gains understanding. The man who understands God, who has godly wisdom, who understands all of those beautiful, incredible, awesome things about God and how much God loves him, that man is happy. Happy is that man who gains wisdom and understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. You know, we look at some of these athletes today that make $30, $40 million a year just in salary, not to count their contracts. And we think about, wow, I cannot imagine $40 million a year to play a kid's game. Can't imagine $40 million a year, period. However, the Bible says... If you want to be happy, there's something that's worth more than 40 million a year. Is that what the Bible says? How many of us truly believe that? If I have the opportunity of making 40 million a year and not knowing God, or knowing God and making nothing a year, the Bible says I'm going to be happier knowing God. Why? Because I can't take a penny of the money with me, but I can take my relationship with God all the way through eternity. That's why it says, verse 15, She's more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is the tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Speaking about godly wisdom and understanding. Verses 13 and 18 both contain the word happy. Verses 13 and 18 are the bookends in between which we are told how to be happy. Here's the question I have for you. How many millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent every year on people trying to find happiness? Through alcohol, drugs, greed, possessions, power. Everybody's looking to be happy. You know, the Constitution guarantees us the right to pursue happiness, but, but finding it's quite another thing. It's like trying to nail jello to the ceiling. It doesn't work. But God's Word tells us exactly where happiness is found. If we could just get our minds around the fact that happiness is found in God's Word and knowing God, and it's worth far more than all the money we can ever make, all the things we can ever possess, all the worldly things we can ever pursue, and all of these blessings come with her, what a beautiful power passage this is. We need to do more than pay at lip service. We need to understand this is godly wisdom. But you know, it doesn't stop there. One of my all-time favorite Old Testament 316s is Daniel. Please turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 has elements in it. Well, the entire book of Daniel has a couple of very familiar elements in it that we're probably, we've been taught since Sunday school. We talk about Daniel and the lion's den and all those sort of things. But in Daniel chapter 3, there's another one. 
In Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar builds this incredible gold statue and he wants everybody to fall down and worship it. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jews, Israelites, that worship the one true God, said, we ain't doing it. Now, keep in mind that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already seen the power of this king displayed. They had seen their home, their home city ransacked and pillaged. They themselves had been taken captive, probably been made eunuchs. And, you know, life wasn't turning out probably. Probably when those three were little boys playing in the streets of Jerusalem, they probably didn't say, hey, when I grow up, I want to become a captive eunuch. I tell you, that's the way to go. That's probably not the way they figured their life was going to turn out. It was a little, little more difficult than they had thought. But the thing is, you know, some people today, when the going gets tough, they give up on God, which is the worst possible thing you can do, because when the going gets rough, and, and you can't handle it yourself, that's when you, you come to understand you need God more than you understand that in previous times. But at any rate, here they are. And in verse 13, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3.13, in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men to the king. And he spoke to them, saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image I've made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God who will deliver you from my hands? We sit back and we sit in our nice air-conditioned building in our, you know, plush pews and we say, oh yeah, they had a great faith. Because we know the rest of the story is Paul Harvey's. We know what happens, right? We've heard this story for decades. We know. But they didn't. Present time to them, they did not know exactly what was going to happen. That's what we've got to get. Just like when we have our, stri our trials, yeah, our trials and our struggles, and we don't know how they're going to come out, and we don't know how the doctor's test report's going to come out, and we don't know how the situation's going to work out with my job or my health or my relation. We just don't know. They didn't know either. But they trusted their God. And this is what they said to this king who they knew his brutality. Verse 16, good old 316. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I bet, I, I'm guessing that Jaws must have dropped all around when people heard that. Who, da who would dare? They said, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery fire. Based on what, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Based on their faith and their knowing God. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Then they take it up a level. But if not, did you get that? They said, we know our God is our God's able to do that. Is our God able to do anything? Amen. We know He's able. But sometimes for His divine purposes, He may decide not to do that which He is capable of doing. Is that correct? That's what we got to understand. They understood it. 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, but if God in His will chooses not to deliver us, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. Even if God doesn't answer us the way we want him to, we're going to trust him. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Can we really say that? Because see, here's the beauty of that. God had a plan. And the plan included them being thrown into the furnace... Because God was glorified through that. The man who took them up, these elite troops that took them up and cast them in, the fire was so hot that the ones who carried them up to the edge perished. And these men went down. And the king looked down in there and he said, Didn't we throw three men into the fire? But I see four. And the fourth one is like a son of the gods. And he pulls them out. And their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Isn't God awesome? And we need to trust him like they did even if he doesn't do what we think he'd ought to sometimes. Turn to me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I'll give you a minute to find that one, because we don't usually go to Habakkuk very much, but there's a beautiful passage here that's a very powerful passage that includes 3.16. And it is this. Habakkuk chapter 3. Verse 16, God has been talking about the wrath that he is going to bring and the judgment he is going to bring on his people. And Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 3.16, When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. Stop right there. There's been this picture painted. Read the rest of the book. It's a very short book. Read it when you have time. There's been this picture of, of God's wrath being poured out on these people. But then look what Habakkuk says in the very next verse, verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Everything, even if everything comes apart, even if there's no food to feed us, even if our livelihood income, even if everything else is gone, even if nothing works, it's all gone. What does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Isn't that an awesome text? But it doesn't stop there. Look in the very next book, Zephaniah. Another 316 power passage. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 14 of Zephaniah. It says this. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Aren't you glad the Lord has taken away your sin this morning? Think about that. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Is God with us this morning? Yes. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. What? We talk about our rejoicing in God. Do you know that God rejoices over His people? 
Do you understand if you are here this morning and you are a child of the living God, God rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God is singing. He's so happy. We come to church and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. But how often do we picture God just singing? He's so happy. Is that what the text says? That's what the text says. It's obviously prophetically speaking about, about the new covenant and, and about the spiritual Zion as it were. But God will quiet you with his love and read you. God will sing over you is the picture that we get out of the text here. And finally, in Malachi, a couple of books further forward. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.16-18 through 18, says this. People here been told about the great coming day of the Lord. Some of them feared the Lord and some of them would not. But it says in Malachi 3 and verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him, and those who fear the Lord, for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. You want to know whom God just rejoices over? Those who meditate on him, those who fear him, those who will listen to him. Look what God says about them, and take this with you this afternoon. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. My jewels. Some versions may say my special treasure. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. God says, those people who fear me and meditate on my name and learn of me, verse 16, they'll be mine on the day that I make them my special treasure, my prized possession. God wants to make you his special sinless, prized child. Today is what we typically call Father's Day in our country and in our society. But every Sunday is Father's Day. Every Sunday we come together to worship our Father God in heaven who gave His only begotten Son for us, which is the text we started off with. But if you're here this morning... The Bible says that the way we become a child of the Heavenly Father is to hear about Jesus, to believe the gospel message, to be willing to confess His name, repent of our sins, and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. That is where we are adopted into the Heavenly Father's family. Galatians 3, 26 and 7. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for... All of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's where we become an adopted child and a co-heir with Christ. His begotten Son is when we are baptized, when our sins are washed away. We rise up to walk in newness of life as a member of God's family. This morning, if you've never done that, the Father in heaven wants to make you His child. What better day than this Lord's Day? To simply decide, you know what? I love this God who loves me so much He gave His Son for me, John 3.16. And I believe Him. And because I believe Him, when He says I have to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins to become His child, I'm going to do it. So that next Sunday, 
when you go to worship be Father's Day all over again only this time you'll be celebrating your Heavenly Father because you have decided to allow him to adopt you into his family that awesome and if you're here this morning and you've already done that, but you've gone out and you've soiled your clothes with sin, or you've, you've gotten out to a place where you've struggled with some things and you haven't made the right decisions, if you need to repent or you need the prayers of the church, or, again, to be baptized and become His child, would you please make your way to the front as we stand and sing?